0: and life, all of these things would mark the good life for them. But Solomon is going to take us from the sublime but also to the ridiculous. He touches on this in verse 17 of chapter 1, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize that this too also was striving after the wind. He's going to repeat the same thought again in chapter 2, verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done. So Solomon is going to take us in these extremes as he walks through this. He's going to begin with living life of laughter and this is lubricated by his wine verse 3 and he's going to talk about the issue of this life of pleasure if you will as we walk through chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 and if I could title this message it is living it up will always let you down and this is the conclusion that Solomon comes to He is going to begin in the section of chapter 2 and he's going to talk about the life of a party animal but he is going to show the futility of it all and he is going to lay this out for us as we walk through this and he is helping us understand the futility of the way of the humanist and you can add whatever label you want on their existentialist whatever it is you want to say Solomon essentially is going to cover all of these things. And, you know, really, we could take philosophy and, and reduce it down to simply just two schools. In reality, that is what there is. But whatever the, the worldview that one has, Solomon is going to cover all of them in this book. He has started off in chapter one dealing with the issue of intellectualism, and then he's going to move into the issue of living the life of laugh, laughter and pleasure and indulging in all the senses, and he will talk about the amassing of property and the amassing of wealth, and that he accumulated more than anyone else before him, and therefore he is the top dog, and that is what we're going to get into next week, but he wants to show the futility of this kind of life, but we also need to understand these passages, these sermons that Solomon lays out for us as the preacher, because we need to understand and be reminded of the fact that there is a difference between the humanist and those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this in in regards to our own life, and with Christ's Sermon on the Mount, but he challenges the way that we live our life, and I was thinking about this. The world, they they pursue health, and they pursue a home, and, and a house, and they pursue clothing on their back, and food on the table, And these are the things that they not only need, but also at times want. And we do, though, in access at times, we want more than what is merely just needed. But we find ourselves as believers praying for the same thing. We pray for health. We pray for a house and a home. We pray for clothing on the back. We pray for food on the table. The only difference is that we thank God in the end. But then my question to us is, what's the difference then? Because the unbeliever can look at our life and say, well, we pursue exactly the same things, and we need the same things, we want the same things, we have the same things. The only difference is the fact that you thank God, and if you want to attribute Him to all the things that you have, then that's fine, go ahead. But what is the difference? Solomon is going to challenge us to think about our life as he walks through these different views of life and the way that the world seeks to make sense of life and to answer life's questions, but we need to evaluate our own view of life. How do we live? And is the way that we live our life radically different from the rest of the world? Do they see that we are living a God-centered life or a me-centered life? So Solomon is going to take us on this journey, this investigation under the sun. He's gonna reveal three things, primarily in chapter two, the futility of pleasure, the futility of possession, and the futility of pride he's going to end on the issue of fame and so on and in this popularity and we can look at the world around us and see that these are things that everyone else pursues and goes after but we're gonna find from Solomon I've been there done that and there's nothing to find there there is no meaning there there is nothing in regards to answers for life it is futile it is vain it is empty to most people we would understand that they think that the unlimited money means that there can be unlimited satisfaction therefore you can have all the happiness and and meaning of life as long as you have unlimited resources well Solomon is going to reveal the fact that he had unlimited resources that he accumulated gold and silver above and beyond anyone else verse 8 of chapter 2 i collected for myself gold and silver and the treasure of kings and provinces this was a wealthy man he had it all in a sense, we can say he was unlimited in his wealth. Therefore, he was unlimited in all the things that he could pursue to bring about satisfaction in his life. He could go after anything that pleased him, and he did. And he gives us a sampling of the things that he went after. And so some people then look with envy upon the wealthy and think that if I just had the money that they have, then I could pursue these pleasures in life, these vain things, and I could have the good life. Sometimes we might find ourselves as believers pursuing the same thing, thinking that if I just had that money, I could also have the good life. But Solomon says the good life is the life in which you have God, and you don't need anything else. And he is your satisfaction, and he is your contentment, and he is your joy, he is your all in all, and you look for nothing else, nowhere. Else. And the things that you might then have in life as Solomon will address, whether it is a job or these other things, then see them as a gift from God and enjoy them as a gift from God, but do not glory in them over God. And this is also a tendency for us at times. We glory in the gifts rather than in the giver of those gifts. So the context is this, and he's going to make a transition in chapter 2, verse 1. And the transition is from seeking intellectualism and education as being the answer and people do claim this right it, it, education it solves all the problems of the world and this is this is the answer for everything it doesn't matter if it's individual lives or communities or what have you if everyone just had a better or higher education the argument goes then there would be no Political instability there would be no international tension. There would be no racism no AIDS, right? I mean you look at the world's response every time there is some kind of conflict or crisis We just need to educate everybody. Let's have a class on this Let's take them and give them this information and then we can solve all of these problems was reminded of this statement and I'm I'm going to reduce it for you but the statement is this this quote socialism is the opium of the intellectual class man has his answers for for the ills of the world Stalin had his answer for the world back in the 1930s just blows my mind that he did this but it was a man-made forced famine and he forced it to happen over four million think about it. Four million Ukrainians were starved to death purposefully. Then he used the press corps to cover this up. The interesting thing about it and the shocking thing is that there were actually some in the press corps that actually believed that Stalin was doing the right thing in this that he had discovered the answer for the workman's paradise. And he has discovered this, and he could usher it in. And so for some of them, the response was, well, you need to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Over 4 million people were starved to death intentionally to achieve what he was trying to achieve, the so-called paradise. We find the world coming with these solutions. They are humanistic. They are not God-honoring and God-glorifying. And if they are humanistic, the reality of the fact is that there is no regard for humanity. If you do not come from a personal God who has created you in His image and who has made you special and unique, then you really are nothing because you come from nothing then in the world's eyes and you're going nowhere and there's no meaning and purpose to life and it's really whatever you can make of life for yourself and so it doesn't matter who you step on and it doesn't matter if you kill four million people to accomplish what you want to achieve. And so Solomon is going to take us down this pathway and say, this is the world's solution to things. This is their answer to life. But I'm going to tell you, it does not work. Take his word on it. You don't have to go and experiment for yourself and find it out for yourself. It's written in the word of God, so we know that it's true. Thus, we just need to trust that God's revelation given through Solomon to us. So Koileith, he certainly does not find that human wisdom and education provide any solution verse 18 he says in chapter 1 for with great wisdom comes great frustration whoever increases his knowledge merely increases his heartache sorrow and his anguish and this precedes his statement that no human effort or any kind of education can straighten things out in the world verse 15 of chapter 1 whatever is crooked cannot be straightened whatever is lacking cannot be counted there is no way that we can deal with these things the only one who can do this is God himself he is the only one who can bring true change There are things in life that we just don't have control over. But the amazing thing for us as believers, we know that God is in control. He is a sovereign one. The rest of the world thinks they're in control. And so when there are irregularities and there are things that they can't explain and when there's enigmas to life, why why there's cancer, why there's suffering, why there's trials, they try to come up with their own explanation, but it's found wanting. But we know the truth. We have the truth. We need to declare the truth, and the truth is God. The proverb then concludes this whole section that the labors of mankind living under the sun are ultimately unprofitable, unsatisfying, unremarkable, and unrememberable. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything's been done already. And you say, well, we landed on the moon. That's something new. But do you realize that there are common elements to all of these things, whether it's exploring the Americas or going to the moon? There are elements that are the same in both of those experiences and realities. In other words, there's similarity there. Whether you're inventing dynamite or whether it's the atomic bomb, there are realities in both of those things that are the same. In other words, Solomon's saying, there is nothing new under the sun. We look at it and go, ah, this has never been done before. And Solomon says, but it has. We think that we're pretty amazing because we have hot running water in our houses. The Romans were doing that long before we came around. And there are things that the Egyptians do that we could never figure out and still haven't figured out. The intellectual pursuit and its acquisition then alleviates nothing. It only brings greater depression as far as Solomon is concerned. More sorrow, more sadness of heart, more anguish in his life. Therefore, he talks about the vanity of the natural world, the vanity of wisdom and knowledge. And now he's going to talk about the vanity of pleasures, possessions, and accomplishments. If I could give you the three-part breakdown of chapter 2 real easily. Koelath tested life, verses 1 through 11. He hated life, verses 12 through 23. And this is his conclusion. Notice verse 17 of chapter 2. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun. It was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. And this is that expression again. It's like trying to shepherd the wind and put it into a pen. It's impossible. Verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. This is his conclusion of it all. I tested life. I hated life. And at the end, he's going to accept life. But he's going to accept it because of what it is from God, verses 24 through 26. So that is the the flow of chapter 2. You can take a nap now, and I'll wake you up when we're done. So here Solomon takes us, and he's going to take us on the futility of pleasure. He's going to give us a sneak preview with a summary of it in verse 1 of chapter 2. And he is going to talk about... The perspective of checking out pleasure. And this is a test, as he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Now, there's some things that I'll explain as we walk through this, because there are certain words that Solomon uses, like in chapter 2, or chapter two verse 2, he talks about laughter. And it's going to be a broad term, but it also is going to deal with this issue of just this frivolous, merrymaking kind of laughter. In other words, it's partying. So he's going to begin as the party animal. He's going to lay out the futility of self-indulgent pleasure, of play and entertainment. If you seek for answers in life in all of these things, you're not going to find it there. But Solomon is going to help us understand that if you live this life of the party animal, eventually you're going to have to face the pain of reality. And the reality is you can try to drown everything out and you can practice escapism in in verse 3 of chapter 2. You can seek the alcohol and you can try to escape from everything. But in reality, eventually when you wake up, you're going to have to face the pain that's still there. In other words, it doesn't take it away. You can drink all you want to drink, but the pain doesn't go away. The frustrating things of life don't go away. And oftentimes, when you live that kind of life, the parting life, the life of consumption, the life of all pleasure, eventually you find that you've actually brought more pain into your life. Because we often find that with those who give themselves over to these things like Solomon does, they find themselves overly indulged in all of a sudden what they said, I can manage, I can manage, all of a sudden they realize it's managing them. It controls their life. Amazing thing about Solomon is that he manages to maintain his control. He does not go into complete debauchery. He keeps his wits about him. He still has his objectivity, and yet at the same time, he plunges in. So this is a controlled hedonism, if you will. But he's gonna help us understand party animals tend to burn themselves out in two different directions. First is this in a fantasy of fun. This is pure escapism. Rock stars live this kind of life. This is what they want. Remember watching an interview of the band members of KISS Two of them wanted to make money, and it was all about making money, and so they were serious, and they were about business. The other two, they wanted to live the life of the rock star. They just wanted to drink and party and forget everything and everybody and just escape. They wanted to live this fantasy life. They hide behind the painted face and the masks and and the get-ups and the costumes that they put on and all of that, and they wanted to indulge themselves, and this was their answer for life, and this is what they wanted to pursue so Solomon is going to address that. The other is the feeding frenzy. This is self, selfish indulgence. And from verses 4 and following, we are going to see that Solomon is going to do all of these things for himself. In other words, he is very self-centered. So he begins in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will try self-indulgent pleasure to see if it is good. The word that he uses here in regards to pleasure refers to that which is foolish pleasure, self-indulgent, frivolous, merry-making. It is the party lifestyle. It is to give in to any kind of craving your flesh may have. Do what you want to do. In other words, stop trying to figure out all the, the, the questions of life and don't try to figure out the issue of pain. Just drown the pain. Surround yourself with people who want to amuse you and tell great jokes and they want to just rip it up and have a great time and indulge in all the wine that you want to indulge in. And it's interesting because he didn't seek counsel from anyone else. We find him talking to himself again, just as he did in chapter 1, which is a reminder for us that this kind of lifestyle just doesn't happen to you. Sometimes if we've discipled people coming out of this life of self-indulgent pleasure and so on, and we've tried to help them to to become sober and so on, sometimes they act the victim. It's not my fault. I can't help it. It's my surroundings. It's the way I was raised. It's this I went through and that I went through and all of this stuff. But you still made a choice. When I look back and if I share my testimony with anybody and reveal the time of, Walking away from the Lord, I have never, ever, ever held anyone else accountable for it but me. Because no matter what was going on in life, I still made the choice. Thus, it's my responsibility. And we see Solomon doing the same thing. So I'm going to give you a Hebrew lesson. I'm going to try and simplify it here. But I have to do it for you because the NASB doesn't make it so clear in verse 1 of chapter 2 they start off with I will test test you with pleasure and then it, then it renders it, so enjoy yourself. But that is not how the Hebrew goes. So they put in a margin, a notation, literally this, but I'm just going to lay it out for you. This expression, I will test, it's what we call a cohortative in Hebrew. When that is followed by a wow plus an imperative, it is purpose and result. In other words, what Solomon is saying this, I propose a test, and the goal is this, to see what is good, if it is tov. In other words, is this really the good life? Is there value in this? Is there meaning in this? Is there great significance in this? Is there ultimate reality that I can find in this? Can I find something that is worth doing in this? So Solomon isn't merely testing meaningfulness, or of pleasure but he's looking at the goodness the ultimate value of this and so we can ask ourselves is this really called the good life because the world would say yes it is I'm living the good life we look at all these rappers and rock stars and everything else actors actresses they're all saying the same thing I'm living the good life I'm living it up I'm happy I'm I'm surrounded by people who make me laugh I can drink when I want to drink I can do the things that I want to do But isn't it interesting when we look at their lives and what a mess they are? I mean, just recently, Johnny Depp and all that he went through with his wife, right, or ex-wife. The dude owns an island. I mean, seriously? He owns his own island. He has everything that one could imagine in this world. Money, fame, all of that. And yet, there is misery in his life. There is no true happiness in his life. And if you know anything about the history of his life, it's surrounded by death and despair. So Solomon is going to help us understand this, that this kind of life, it doesn't bring you anything, and it is a very self-centered life. The frame of reference, it's interesting, as he lays this out for us, we're going to see that he is very self-oriented. Starting in chapter two, verses four through eight, and this runs through this section, and it's autobiographical, so he, he starts off with I, and we have I here, but notice what happens, and starting in verse four and following, I enlarged my works, and I built houses, notice, for myself. Who did I do this for? I did it for me. Notice verse five, I made gardens and parks, not not park, parks, plural, many of them. One wasn't enough, I needed a whole bunch of them. So I made parks for myself, it's kind of like him trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. But he makes this statement then, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted them all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6, I made ponds of water for myself. I bought male and and female slaves and so on. Verse 8, also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. All of this, Solomon says, was for myself. No one else, not my wives, not my concubines. It was for me, 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 me. So the orientation here is all about self and I, and I came across this phrase once before and it wasn't used in reference to Ecclesiastes but it really is, this is the gospel of selfishness. This is what the world buys into, this is the world's gospel, not God at the center of the universe, me. I'm at the center of my universe. I give myself meaning, I give myself purpose. I establish my own reality and if I want to be a dog, I can be a dog. So he's gonna pick up on these areas of pleasure that had the most potential interest for him. And really, behind this lifestyle is the mentality, hey, look, you only go around once. Let's make it good, (laughs) right? YOLO, you only live once. Have one shot at this. You might as well get everything you want out of it. So in chapter 2, verse 10, notice what he says. I denied myself nothing my eyes desire, and I refused my heart no pleasure. I gave myself everything. I didn't restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted, and I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. Whatever would make me happy, that's what I had. And he had the money to do it. But here is the summary of what he discovered in verse 1. Before we even get into all the details, this is my evaluation, frustration. Behold, it too is futile. It's meaningless. It's all empty. There's nothing here. Escapism, it fails to satisfy you, verse 2. Laughter, I found it as madness. Pleasure, what does it accomplish? The answer to that is nothing nothing and he asks the question because he wants us to answer it because he wants to engage us he wants the answer to come out of our own mouths there's nothing to be found in this kind of life there is no answer to life here i said of laughter it is madness and a pleasure what does it accomplish this word for pleasure is the same one he uses in verse one so it is that frivolous self-indulgent pleasure. Therefore, when he talks about laughter here, it also takes on the nuance of self-indulgent, frivolous, merrymaking. It's the party scene. Comedy, cutting it up, hanging out, having a good time. This is what the world wants to do. Forget the pains of life and forget answering the difficult questions. Let's just give ourselves up, right? Let's just escape. Is there anything wrong with humor? No. But then we start joking around in sport, and we start tearing other people down, and then we move into coarse jesting, which means we start making light of things that are indecent and immoral, and we laugh at them, and when we can laugh at them, it makes it easier for us to accept it. And because it's all about me, 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 and I need to have a high view of myself, now I start ripping on other people so I can feel big. Now all of a sudden the humor is corrupted. God has given us this. He's allowed us to laugh, and no doubt God has a sense of humor. I can look back in my life, and there's quite a few times, right? I know God's got a sense of humor. Solomon says in chapter 10, verse 19, although it is not true, a feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Not. So he surrounded himself with happy people who kept him amused, but even the jokes and the laughter grow stale after a while. This merrymaking, this parting scene, it is madness, he said, and it accomplishes absolutely nothing in life. Laughter isn't to be squelched as an evil, however, but if it is found to be the solution for life's basic problems, then you need to rethink it. And if you use laughter to deal with death, Solomon's going to reveal in chapter 2, there's nothing funny about death for those who have no relationship with Christ. It's no laughing matter. Humor in and of itself is not an evil, but it's what we laugh about. It's the things that we make light of. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and following says this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or f- foolish talk or coarse jesting, which is out of place, but rather thanksgiving. You see, if we can laugh about the coarse immoral things, it makes them more acceptable. we can laugh at it, it's not a big deal anymore. And then it's easier for us to take it into our life. Comedy is a great thing. Humor is a great thing. But we must also keep our wits about us when we are laughing at things in life. And humor is good sometimes in our own life, is it not? It's good to be able to laugh at yourself. I praise the Lord for my kids because they, they, they keep me humble, right? They have a way of doing that. They help you laugh at yourself. They help you take, not take yourself so seriously. So humor is good. Laughter is good. But not when it's given over into self-indulgence. In verse 3, he's going to talk about this. This also fails to satisfy. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. While well, my mind was still guiding me wisely. Then I took hold of folly until I could see what good there was for the sons of men to do under heaven in the few years of their lives. I went on this feeding frenzy, I I gave in to my appetites, I, I sought to please myself. It was totally selfish. If I could put it in Solomon's words, I thought deeply about the effects of indulging myself with wine, and all the while my mind was still guiding me, the effects of behaving foolishly so that I might discover what is profitable for people on earth through the very few days of their life. Can you actually think about this, right? Could you rationally control indulgence? Could this give life meaning for you? The answer for Solomon is no, it can't. Then how much less those who just surrender completely to overindulgence? How empty that life must be. Our neighbors do this. This is how our neighbors live their life. Do we tell them the futility of this pursuit? Do we tell them how empty life is for them, but how full it can be in God? Do we tell them the joy that it is to have a relationship with the one true God, to have the triune God residing within us and with us and walking through life with us, that if we have him, we don't need anything else? I mean, think about your own life. I was thinking about this. We do this. We, we experience good things, and we thank God for that, and we ought to. But do we thank him when there isn't anything good in our life? Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 and 18. When there's no figs, when the olive vines, right, the grape vines, they're not producing anything. When there are no sheep in the pens, there's no cattle in the stalls. Do you rejoice in the Lord your God? Do we rejoice when things are taken away from us? Do we rejoice as Job did, right? When he lost his health and he lost his family and he lost his home, and yet he still could bless the Lord and he worshiped God? Go back and read it. So then if we can't, what makes us different from the world then? If we only say thank you to God for the good things, well, what about the bad things? Or what about the things that we don't understand? I'm so thankful, Lord, that you are in control of this, even though I don't understand this. Even though I don't have the answers for these enigmas, I know you do, so thank you for that. Or do we complain to God when things don't go right? When we're in trials and tribulation? When there are things that we cannot answer? Do we start to complain to God and gripe to God? Do we blame God for things that are missing in our life? Things that we think we ought to have or that we are due as human beings? We deserve this, I deserve happiness? Where did Christ ever say that happiness was a part of being his disciple? Most often he said it's gonna cost you something. I still marvel in Acts when Paul went around to encourage the other disciples as he went from town to town. He encouraged them and he says, Through many tribulations, you are going to enter the kingdom of God. How is that encouraging? That doesn't say, I'm going to be happy, happy, happy. (laughs) But here's the amazing thing about a relationship with God forget the happiness, we have joy. We have true hope, not wishful thinking. That other stuff is for the world, not for us. There are limitations to Solomon's investigation, three of them that are clear from the context. He's limited by his nature. He looks at human endeavors, not looking at things from God's perspective. This is how he begins. Only once in chapter 1 does he mention the name of God. All of this is from the humanistic perspective. It's limited by space, earthly sphere. Humanistic viewpoint can only see things from space and time, and that's it. Eternity doesn't factor in. It's funny, some of the young people, they have a hard time with this. One of them is, is very smart, intellectual. Intellectual is a hard time with the fact that when I talk about the eternality of God it just doesn't compute for him it doesn't make sense but see only because of the spirit of God in us does it make sense to us But Solomon's looking from this earthly sphere he's not looking at things from a spiritual perspective and he's definitely not looking at them from an eternal perspective that will come that will come, but he wants to take us on this journey because he wants us to understand that pleasure produces no lasting accomplishment. Oh yeah, there might be some temporary use that you might get out of it. It might relieve some grief in your life for a moment. It might alleviate the boredom, right? We go through the cycles of chapter one. Everything just keeps going round and round. Everything's cyclical and this is boring and we do the same old things all the time and I need to escape this boredom. true saying, isn't it? Idle hands do the devil's work. Solomon's going to exhort us to keep busy, but don't become a workaholic. He's going to address that issue, being a workaholic. I find it interesting because workaholic, you would think that it has to do with someone who just loves to work. It's your impression you get from the statement, right? You're a workaholic, you love to work. Or maybe you like the particular job you have, and therefore you just want to do it all the time. But he'll help us realize that a workaholic isn't just merely someone who loves the job. Sometimes a workaholic is an escapist, just like the alcoholic. It's a way to escape from your problems facing life, facing reality. Maybe home life isn't that great. Maybe you need to be a better husband, a better dad. And so, therefore, it's just easier to go do the job and to be busy, and I can't be around. The other thing that's interesting is that sometimes for those who are workaholics, it has nothing to do with the job, primarily. It has to do with the response that comes from the job. In other words, when you work a job, that, that oftentimes you get this immediate gratification, you see something done. But then you get praised for it, you get thanked for it, you get acknowledged for it, you get affirmed for it. You realize that some people who are workaholics, they are that because they have what the world would call low self-esteem. They're lacking in affirmation. They have a low view of themselves. And therefore, as they do the job, they get the accolades, the attaboys, and that's what keeps them going. And oftentimes, they don't even realize that's what's driving them. Solomon is going to get into all these issues, but he helps us to understand this kind of life. There's nothing permanent in this pleasure life. Pursuit of pleasure is basically a hollow life. And it's clear that he kept his mind about him, and it wasn't a mindless diving into the quagmire of hedonism. But he pushed the boundaries. But the reason for this is because we need someone who went there, who saw it, experienced it, came out on the other side, kept his objectivity, his wits about him, went through all of it, came out the other side and said, let me tell you what happens. Let me tell you what you'll find there. Absolutely nothing. Because anyone else who gives themselves into complete hedonism, they never come back. They have no lessons for us. They wind up dying there. So God in his providence is going to use Solomon to help us understand that fun under the sun equals none when life is done. If all you do is live life for this life, you will find in the end you have no life. Is this not what Christ said? What profits a man if he gains the whole world and everything in it if he forfeits his soul? Solomon is going to take us on this journey in chapter 2 and continue on. He's going to talk about the futility of possessions and the futility of selfish ambitions. He's going to help us understand what it means to be the top dog. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I was the top dog. I had it all. But let me tell you what I found. Dad, would you close in a word of prayer?